Okay, how about your next patient? So next patient is a 44-year-old Vietnamese female who was seen initially about four years ago. And at that time, she had some abdominal discomfort and constipation, which led to a GI workup, which ultimately revealed a near-obstructing lesion in the mid-proximal colon, which on pathology was T4N1. There was perineural and vascular invasion. The patient was KRAS wild type. Her original postoperative CEA was 8.8. The patient was treated with Zelox. She tolerated that rather well. She had follow-up office visits and a colonoscopy in May of 07, which was negative. In about August of 08, she started to have a rise in her CEA, initially to 6 or 7, and then up to 15 by October. She did have a CAT scan when it originally went up that did not show anything. The workup was repeated when her CEA went to 15. Again, there was no evidence of abnormality. In December, she had further difficulties with abdominal pain, and was found to have an obstructing malignant lesion requiring gastrochagenostomy. The tumor at that time was compressing the second portion of the duodenum. Her CEA had risen to 53. Now, where was the tumor arising from? It looked as though it was coming from her original anastomotic site. Hmm. So her CEA had risen to 53. She had her surgery. She recovered from that reasonably well, but it took probably six or eight weeks before she was ready for any treatment. She was started on cetuximab and arinotecan, and she remains on that therapy to date. About eight weeks ago, she had requested that she have a longer break, and we went on to a four-week-on, four-week-off schedule. She's really tolerated this therapy remarkably well. Her repeat CAT scans have not shown any progression of her disease. Her CEA has remained at three. Her performance status is really quite good. She was in the office today. She has some complaints of nausea, And some of this may well be related to her chemotherapy. It's right around the time of her treatment. But in taking more of a history and talking to her, she has a lot of issues in terms of anxiety and neuroses. And I think that some of that is playing into it. And we rely entirely on the assistance of a translator to take care of her. Now, this lady, I guess, is considered stage four NED. So it's sort of a pseudo-adjuvant situation. Was the tumor all removed? The tumor was removed. I think the surgeon was not confident that there were no elements of tumor left. And there is still a soft tissue fullness around the surgical site. And whether that's a post-operative change or disease, I'm not sure. What went into the decision to give her cetuximab as opposed to bevacizumab? I think that the fact that she was KRAS wild type, obviously, and I think that originally I just thought that she was perhaps more likely to get a significant response by using cetuximab initially. What about the choice of biologic in this situation, Charlie? KRAS wild, no prior biologic therapy. How do you generally approach it? And what about this specific situation? Well, I think it's a perfectly reasonable choice. We have to assume, given this nature of this disease, that surgery was probably largely palliative and not curative, and that she's clearly got disease in her abdomen. As such, you know, in a setting of stage four disease and somebody who's KRAS wild type, and maybe somebody who you say, well, I'd like to pick a regimen with a greater likelihood of objective response, I think that picking a anti-EGFR is a very reasonable alternative. And for that matter, I think the test of time is she's done well with it. It sounds as if she's responded well to it. She's tolerating it reasonably well. So, albeit BEV would have been a reasonable choice, I think cetuximab is equally reasonable. So, what happened with the cetuximab, and particularly in terms of dermatologic issues, Phil? 
So initially, she had a very significant rash that responded modestly well to clindamycin gel, and so we changed her to doxycycline, and that's been more effective. And she still has some elements of a rash, but it's by no means debilitating at all. How do you approach, Charlie, the issue of rash with the EGFR antibodies? Do you do anything preventively? You might want to comment on some of the work that's been done looking at this question. It's really something that I've evolved with, Neil, whereas historically I was not doing anything prophylactic. I was warning patients that they would develop the rash 8 to 10 days after starting the cetuximab or panitumumab. I've been impressed, particularly the trial that was done with panitumumab that Edith Mitchell was the principal investigator on, where they randomized patients to either watch and wait or an aggressive regimen prophylactically of moisturizers, doxycycline, topical steroids. And they really did dramatically reduce the rate of grade 2 or higher rash. So increasingly, I've been doing that. That is, I'm giving them a prescription for doxycycline. I'm giving them the topical steroids to use really at the onset of rash. And my nurses and I talk to them about using a moisturizer pretty intensively early on. And I think it's actually reduced the morbidity. And if you actually see this particular patient that Phil's caring for, her rash is modest. There's just some faint redness on her cheeks. But now you didn't use anything preventively on her, correct, Phil? Pretty much when we start somebody on therapy, we give them instructions and prescriptions to start off with. But I think I'm kind of evolving in that I'm finding better effects from using doxycycline than the topical gel. So when patients with colorectal cancer who are about to contemplate starting on one of the EGFR antibodies ask you, Charlie, What's the chance I'm going to cruise through this with no problem? The chance I'm going to have a minor problem? The chance I'm going to have a major problem? I tell them that there's an 80% chance that they're going to have at least a rash that they and others will notice. And for that reason, I tell them to start prophylactically. I used to, I'll be honest with you, Neil, historically, I used to say, you know, when I see in two weeks, we'll talk about what to do about the rash, and I'd give them topical cleosin. I've been really underwhelmed with the efficacy of that approach, and I really do feel like it's far more tolerable with the approach that was tested by Edith Mitchell and colleagues. You know, it's interesting, Phil, thinking about what is largely a cosmetic symptom-type problem, getting back to this question of BEV versus EGFR antibody, as opposed to the unusual but potentially serious complication with BEV, but maybe better tolerated quality of life point of view. What have you seen in your own practice in terms of EGFR antibodies? I'm guessing that's mainly cetuximab or panitumumab also. But what do you see in terms of quality of life? It's been a wide range of things. Typically, this patient's a little bit unusual for me in that I would commonly perhaps more commonly in first-line metastatic setting, have used BEV. But in her situation, I was very concerned about how aggressive this lesion would be, and I thought that maybe the numbers would be a little bit more in her favor, given that she's KRAS wild type, that I might get a more significant response with cetuximab. But in terms of the debility from the rash, I've had people who actually have declined further therapy, even in the face of a response, because they found the rash so upsetting. And other people are just so grateful to have the response that they find the rash well worth putting up with. You know, Len Saltz and some of the interviews I've done with him in the last year or two has been very vocal about the, quote, what he calls social stigmatization of EGFR antibody dermatologic effects. And it's hard for me to sort of gauge, you know, how often these problems that he talks about happen. Charlie, how often do you see in a really major problems in terms of interacting with other people because of this? Oh, I see it all too often. It is a big problem. I really do think it's part of the reason 
that these class of drugs are not being used as extensively. It's quality of life unquestionably superior on bevacizumab as opposed to cetuximab or panitumumab. And I've had patients say to me that they don't want to go to the soccer games. They wear a hat and they don't go out as much because they really are so self-conscious about it. So there also were some data reported at ASCO related to EGFR antibodies, mainly cetuximab, Charlie. One, looking at other markers, including BRAFs. Can you comment on that as well as the adjuvant study that was reported? Of course. Well, I think that in some respects, the data for Cetux and for Panitumab is really one of the great triumphs of personalized medicine. I think the KRAS story is an outstanding one. It unquestionably predicts response and has obviously entered into mainstream clinical practice. And what I think people have been trying to do is to understand other events in the pathway. Do those mutations also similarly predict so the one immediate downstream event from KRAS, as you know, is the BRAF oncogene, which can also be mutated in colon cancer. And at least five or six phase two studies suggest that if a patient has a BRAF mutant colon cancer, they similarly do not respond to cetuximab or panitumumab. And I think that there was sort of an evolving belief that that should enter into clinical practice similarly. However, we learned from a pooling project of the OPUS and CRYSTAL studies, which had previously shown KRAS to be predictive, that BRAF, in fact, was not predictive. What we know about BRAF is that patients who have BRAF-mutated colon cancer have a far worse outcome, that it is clearly prognostic. But in their data, it was not predictive. Namely, it did not predict benefit to cetuximab, which was surprising. I don't know that the jury is in yet. I mean, one of the problems with all of these studies is that BRAF mutations are uncommon, and so the statistical power to really conclusively know is not quite there. But I think based on the CRYSTAL and OPUS data presented at ASCO, we can't yet conclude whether BRAF mutational status is a predictor. Now, what about this thought that a lot of people have that Phil just verbalized that Perhaps, again, in the KRS-Wild situation, the response rate might be better with an EHRF antibody and chemo compared to BEV and chemo. Do you think that's true? I think, well, it's a reasonable point. Namely, if you look, for instance, in the 966 study looking at bevacizumab with Folfox, albeit there is a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival, there was no difference in response rate. In contrast, the studies using either cetuximab or panitumumab, adding that to frontline chemotherapy, be it Folfox or Folfiri, you're really showing an improvement in response. So I think it is a plausible argument that faced with a patient where truly obtaining the most robust response, independent of whether the survival will be, if that's a critical and immediate issue, I think it's reasonable to consider an EGFR-based therapy. Now, what about the adjuvant study, the CLGB trial that was reported at ASCO looking at cetuximab? Sure, the North Central study that was presented by Steve Alberts and Rich Goldberg. So this was obviously a study of stage 3 colon cancer patients receiving Folfox with or without cetuximab, which was stopped because of futility, namely that with continued accrual and follow-up, there was no way that the cetuximab arm was going to do better. And so it's clear that adding cetuximab does not improve the outcome in stage 3 disease, and that was looked at even among those who were KRAS wild type. In fact, among those who were KRAS mutant, 
who were enrolled before we really learned about the KRAS story, there was even a suggestion that those who had gotten the cetuximab might have been doing somewhat worse. Either way, it's clear that EGFR-based therapy is not going to have a role in the adjuvant setting, which is a little surprising and disappointing, but it certainly has a role in stage 4 disease. So again, we have a patient who's you know, kind of starting to fit into the chronic disease model. Hopefully, that's the way things are going to go. Phil, what's her life situation, her work, her family status? Charlie and I were talking about this. It's almost hard for me to discern, and it's you know a few years later now, because she continually comes in with her translator, who is a phenomenal advocate. She has a sister who's very quiet, who always comes. And the patient is next to non-communicative. She will smile politely, but she has very little to say or add spontaneously at all. So she has caring people around her. I think her means are very limited. And I talked to her today a little bit about the fact that it might be helpful to get her therapist more involved because I'm not entirely sure that some of the symptoms she's experiencing around the whole chemotherapy event aren't related to some of her underlying anxieties and fears. It is really a challenge when you have to communicate through a translator. Do you have any feelings in terms of what her greatest concerns are? I tried to get at that a little bit today, and I've tried to get at that a little bit in the past. And when I broached the subject of how critical her illness is and how ill she is, she's just exceptionally stoic about it. So I can't say that even after all these years that I know this patient very well. And it's hard to understand exactly what she's thinking. So I'm hoping that her therapist is going to be able to give me some kind of insights. You know, this may seem like a little sort of off the topic, but as you were talking about how difficult it is for you to really kind of get inside her mind, I was thinking, Charlie, about this issue of advanced directives, which theoretically, you know, should be introduced or it's recommended to introduce, particularly in a maybe a situation like this, although I guess you could also wait. How do you approach that and how do you approach it in a patient like this? Well, I think in general, I agree with you that we really should understand the goals of, particularly in stage four disease, understand the goals of care and make sure we have an open conversation, particularly for those patients who want to express their wishes in terms of advanced directives. I was very impressed, and I think Phil worked really hard today to try to get more information out of the patient. She is remarkably quiet. You could imagine she'd go the whole appointment without saying anything. Her translator is impressive. This is a woman who is an unbelievable advocate yeah. and really does all the talking. The responses that you get in Vietnamese are essentially a few words at most. So it's going to be difficult for Phil to try to get at this. And so I think his interest in trying to involve a therapist or others to help this person is critical because it's hard to know what she wants. I wonder how much of this is cultural. I wonder if she had a Vietnamese oncologist, right. whether he or she might approach this differently. I don't know. Any thoughts? I think it's a great point. It's a very good point. I actually did a little reading about that whole cultural difference about expecting longevity versus expecting the day you have and the cultural difference between an Asian population of patients and an American population of patients. But I think I'm going to have to lean on the therapist pretty heavily. But it's funny you say that, Neil, because I said to Phil after the visit, I said, you know, you wonder if this is cultural in that in Vietnam, you wouldn't be permitted to question the physician, that you would get your instructions and you'd move on. I wonder. I wonder, too, whether, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of heterogeneity in any population, but if this type of sort of withdrawal was common, whether or not physicians maybe 
become more skillful in nonverbal assessment and communication? I don't know. I mean, maybe some of what she's not saying is as important as what she might say. Just a thought. Yeah.